From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is Professor of Turfgrass Science at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, Professor Cal Bigelow. Cal's a longtime educator at Purdue University, succeeding the legends Clark Drossel and Bill Daniels, who was a mentor to Jim Beard that we lost very recently. A strong advocate for educating the next generation of turfgrass professionals, Cal's did some very innovative research alone and with colleagues looking at the use of online education and the use of social media as a learning tool in the classroom. Cal was educated at Virginia Tech, North Carolina State, and postdoc with the legendary emeritus professor at the University of Maryland, Peter Noden. He's published dozens of scientific papers on sand-based root zones, management of turf, looking at greenhouse gases and less fertilizers, use of sub-air systems, use of soil microbes, and widely in education journals on progressive learning strategies that incorporate the latest technologies. Here's that conversation with Cal Bigelow. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Cal Bigelow, professor of turfgrass science at Purdue University, a Hokie by his own admissions. Cal, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Frank. I usually try to prepare the guests in some ways. What do we want to talk about? And in your case, you know, I tried to give a broad range of topics. And and a lot of that was simply because you have such a wide range of areas that you've published in as a scientist. So uh, big kudos publicly, Cal, for this great work that you've done. As I said to you, I think your name's going to go down there like with the throstles and the Bill Daniels as sort of the rock of of that program there. So uh, big congrats on that. And let me go back to before that all started for you and what you did worked on in graduate school with Dan Bowman, specifically focused on root zones and the sub-air. So the early iteration of the sub-air, was it even called the sub-air at the time? Uh, it was called the sub-air, and, you know, Frank, you probably remember this. So I, I started grad school late 90s uh, at NC State, and that was that period we were going through the golf construction boom, and uh, people like Jim Moore and people that were on the research committee like yourself with the USGA, you know, we, we were looking at alternatives for construction and maintenance of sand-based root zones. And so prior to me leaving industry, I was actually working at a golf course at the time, uh, we were doing some renovation things, and, and that project with Dan Bowman at NC State kind of caught my eye as far as construction methods. And there was a whole bunch of things related to soil amendments that was happening at the time, some of the, you know, the poor ceramics and the zeolites, and, you know, we were looking at all those different potential soil amendments. And then uh, Dan had tied in uh, the sub-air component of that as a, as a method to try and uh, reduce what uh, what Leon Lucas at the time was calling summer bent grass decline. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was that was exciting to me. And uh, uh, it was actually the sub-air unit that we used. Huh. That's an excellent introduction to the conversation that we're going to have. And, you know, for the listeners that don't really know Dan Bowman, I'm sure you could testify, Cal, this is about one of the smartest guys hardly anybody knows uh, in the turf industry. You know, that is a, a, a excellent program down there. Dan's a, you know, longtime nutrient management guy uh, from out west and also really good physiologist, turf good grass physiologist, physiologist, right? And then yep. ventured into microbial stuff uh, as well. So it was smart of you to be attracted there at a time when lots of questions were coming up about the inorganic amendments 
Uh, that's another part of the conversation. So fascinating. But I thought what was really cool when you talked about, you know, Leon Lucas calling it summer bank class decline that, you know, that's when the alley at four combination started. And, you know, that was the early groundwork for what we know as phosphites and copper based pigments. So, Ultimately, there's one way to solve it at the surface. You were exploring it underneath. So you want to set it up a little bit, what you did for the listeners, because uh, I know it's dusting off. You know, you're getting old like me now, Cal. Uh, yeah, there's, there's more and more the gray hair. hair. More and more gray hair. <laughs> and, you know, one, one child in college now, it's hard to believe. But, uh, uh, you know, the bill arrives each month. That's right. Um, Anyway, but but yeah, so you know the the essence of that project, and you know there were several projects that they had funded in the southeast at that in that in that period was you know depending upon if you were Houston Couch or Leon Lucas or Bruce Martin or, or whichever one of the pathologists you were uh, speaking to in in, the, in that part of the world is uh, we knew that you know cool season grasses decline in the summer months. We knew that you know in hot humid conditions that you know things seem to be even worse than they would be in just hot conditions and you know uh, the practitioner in the industry was talking about you know root mass decline and and so that got someone like you know a Dan Bowman who like I said is an excellent physiologist really starting to think about okay you know what are these triggers that maybe are causing turf grass roots to disappear and so as you start to look at you know the important aspects of of trying to maintain a turf in a stressful situation it's oxygen right, right. And so what's a way to get oxygen into the root zone? Uh, you know, certainly there's diffusion that can occur at the surface, but what happens if you have saturated root zones? And I don't know what it's been like in New York, but I feel like, you know, in the, in the last three weeks, it's been wet, wet, wet here in, in, in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. That affects oxygen levels. And, you know, are there other ways that you can try and uh, have a positive situation for the roots so that we can maintain a root system in the summer months? Mm-hmm. Right. And at the time, uh, it sounds like you tried to combine two technologies. The inorganic amendments were touting the ability to maintain air uh, in the root zone uh, through their fine porous structure and even some water in the root zone if the plants needed it. And also right. the use of the ventilation system at that time uh, known, known as sub-air. And so, uh, you know, it is interesting that you get into it from a root decline and you want to get oxygen in there. So you combine these two technologies and what, what was sort of, what, what, what did you find? We found a lot of interesting things, and I, I think that, you know, in some ways, Dan was, uh, you know, whether he would admit it or not, you know, he, he was playing a little game of myth-busting. And, mm-hmm. you know, Dan was, Dan was someone that was from Wisconsin mm-hmm. and got to North Carolina via California. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have two major ways of constructing root zones, right? And we've got California methods, and then you have, you know, the USGA method. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes when I talk to people about it, it's almost like uh, – sort of East Coast, West Coast rap battles in hmm. the sense that, you know, there's not necessarily one way that's absolutely positively correct, but there's some people that are very passionate about, you know, these, these construction methods. Right. And a big difference between the California method and the USGA method is that gravel blanket. And I think that, you know, Dan was very curious about the, uh, about the gravel layer, about the perched water table, and, you know, whether or not the perched water table was something that, that truly functioned the way that it was designed back in the 50s and 60s. And so he was, he was interested of, of tacking on 
this system to potentially evacuate excess water from the root zone and or add some oxygen into the root zone and, and see what the net effects of that technology might be. Right. And so you had a, a, a brand new green uh, that you constructed mm-hmm. and uh, attached the evacuation unit uh, underneath these various uh, inorganic root zone treatments. We're talking Ecolite, Profile, Green's Choice, and then, you know, straight sand. And again, you know, the California system has a coarser sand that's uh, actually gener- finer. Finer. Slightly sand. finer. Okay, yep, so it's a finer. finer sand. Okay, so. And no gravel layer. And no gravel layer. Okay, so. So now you have this set up, you put the evacuation on, and, and, and in reviewing the paper that you published at the turn of the century, it, it essentially indicated that uh, there wasn't uh, much difference that you could attribute at least to the air vacuum technology. That was the thing right. that always resonated with me when this technology was, as you said, part of the construction boom that our industry was going through uh, at the time. How would you elaborate on my summary there, this statement of, you know, you didn't see much from the evacuation in the young green? Right. And, and, and so one of the things that we were looking at is, you know, we didn't have all the tools that we have today to measure soil moisture, but we did have you know, uh, some things that we could measure volumetric soil water content with. And uh, so we were measuring volumetric soil water content at, at a various depths. Uh, Dan, like I said, was also interested to see if, you know, where, where was this water coming from that was coming out of these devices? Because if you hook one of these suction devices to a root zone that has a gravel blanket or any sort of drain tile, water comes out of that machine. And the question was, where the heck is that water coming from? Is it water that's potentially laying in that gravel, uh, that gravel trench? Is it, is it actually water that is coming out of that perched water table? And so the short answer to that is yes and yes. Uh, but the reality is, you know, when we start to get into some of these undulated putting greens, particularly, you know, probably the most famous architect from the state of Indiana is Pete Dye. And, you know, he's fairly well known for his contours on greens is when you start to get you know, high spots and low spots, you start to get some cavitation, mm-hmm. and that suddenly creates a situation just like if you have a drinking straw with a hole in it, that if you're trying to you know, take something out of your you know, McDonald's milkshake, it's really hard to get it out of the, uh, out of the straw when you have an air hole that's in there. So, so, so it's, it's can't, and that's so interesting. This is exactly where I wanted to go, Kale, because you know, what you described and then clarified at the end in the paper that maybe because this green was new, uh, we didn't see a difference. Maybe it would benefit more mature greens. And so let me let me ask you a question directly about that in a mature green where you have that organic layer at the surface. Do you believe that these devices can evacuate all the way up to the top millimeter or two that would affect the playability of that surface and maybe especially a putting surface? Ooh, you know, I, I think that's, uh, I'll, I'll take the, the answer that I learned many, many years ago from Dave Chalmers was it depends. <laughs> um, it's one, it's one of those things that I think in some circumstances there could be some benefit there, but I think, you know, what we did in those, in that particular root zone, it was primarily a medium coarse, uh, sand, not a, you know, an excessively wet kind of sand. So that's important because there is a lack of contact sometimes of water that might be in the upper two or three inches that might not connect with that stuff that's down at the perch water table. And if you have that that lack of contact between those two two zones of moisture, it's very hard for that uh, that suction pressure to actually pull on that moisture. 
So I think you probably, if you really wanted to dry out a root zone, uh, you're probably better off with surface fans and sort of harnessing the capacity of the turf grass plant and evapotranspiration as opposed to pulling water out of the bottom of that root zone. Perfect. So that that was, of course, uh, my suspicion all along because, you know, you watch professional golf on television and one of the things I'm hearing from a lot of superintendents is, you know, they hear the, they hear the commentators, Kale, constantly waxing on about, oh, they got this sub-air system and it's drying out these greens. And then even at Augusta, my sense was they were still shooting darts because you can't pull the water out of that organic or that layer at the surface, especially as you described, if there's no connection there. So I'm not asking you to go on the record. That's why it's called frankly speaking. It's my <laughs> sort of opinion on it. But, uh, you know, that's the deduction that I made. And what I worry about is it's there's people are considering rebuilding really old greens. And the question comes up, should you put in one of these systems for an additional 18 to 25,000 and I guess I will per put green. You, per, per, per green, green, per green. And, you know, that's if you put an individual unit uh, per green, that would be the high end. And that seems to be more effective than dragging a device around. I'll put you on the spot. If, if, if you had to uh, counsel a golf course to do this, uh, you're going to give me the old it depends idea. I know because I love Dave Chalmers, too. But, you know, you're talking about a cost-benefit analysis based on data we have in hand. I would say, I don't know that you should put it in, but maybe we should. I, I, again, it's, you know, every situation is a little bit different, a little bit unique. Um, you know, at that same time, there was a parallel study that basically published very similar results to what we saw, only a few uh, percent uh, change in volumetric soil water content, and that was the study that Burt McCarty had, uh, I think, in the Myrtle Beach area, where they were also looking at, you know, trying to extract moisture from these newer root zones. Uh, but, you know, as we had conversations between the two institutions, probably one of the bigger benefits going back to you know, the, the overarching goal of the project was, you know, what can we do about uh, soil oxygen levels? And so extracting moisture is one aspect of that, you know, in some of the, the excess uh, or the wetter areas of a root zone. But turning that device into the other mode where you're actually oxygenating the root zone by blowing air into it, especially if you've got a gravel blanket that's there, I think that that's probably one of the better benefits of those systems. So you think it's much more effective blowing Especially in the southeast, in. in the southeast. I think in the southeast, that's probably more effective. Right. Where in the you, summer where months. You, well, that's right. And I got to tell you, Cal, you are exactly right. We are having in 2018 a very stressfully hot and wet season, a, a, a dry start, uh, and a cool start. Cold, cold, cold dry start. start. That's right. And then an abrupt shift to warmth. You guys got pounded a little bit earlier than we did in the Midwest because we had a longer dry period. It was going south of us, but in your native land wasn't spared. They were getting plenty of moisture down there in the Delmarva. So, so anyway, listen, we can talk about the weather forever. We had a southeast summer here. I'm pleased to hear you say you feel like blowing air in could be a benefit in these root zones that need to be oxygenated and need to be uh, cooled in some ways. And I'm with you as well. I think the combination of the surface fans uh, is probably going to be even more effective in some ways than root zones uh, in many areas, wouldn't you say? 
Yeah, and I, and I think if you could work the top, you know, with surface fans and work the bottom by inducing air into the root zones, especially a nice coarse textured root zone that has a gravel blanket where you're going to get a, a much more uniform ability to, uh, you know, move that air around underneath the root zone, uh, you know, that's going to be one tool for these turf managers that are having some stressful situations. Perfect. Let's take a break, Kale. We'll come back and continue our conversation about root zones. This is Frankly Speaking on the TurfNet Radio Network. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm with Professor Cal Bigelow at Purdue University, professor of turfgrass science there for many years now. Huh? You're getting old like me, Cal. I want to get back to the root zone discussion we were having and the oxygenation issue you were uh, work you were working on with Bowman at the time. And it also ventured into what I would say would be some of the earliest modern work that was going on looking at microbial population dynamics. And of course, that's the sort of real nice phraseology I like in a title where you're looking at how the populations behave. And you know, the people that listen to the program regularly have been having an ongoing conversation the last several years with Dan Danelli, Rakaswa, and now I'd like you to chime in on this. You know, you did some of this early work with microbial uh, issues, and you hear a lot of banter in the industry about, you know, soil health and, and soil life and, and feeding the microbes. How would you say it's evolved from when you first studied it back then to maybe where it is now, Kale. This is another topic that I've been I've been really lucky because I've I did some work for my PhD. Then you kind of do whatever you got to do to you know get published and get funded in your job uh, as you go through the faculty promotion process. And I've been very fortunate to meet some folks like Dan Danelli in recent years that you know have allowed me to kind of come back to this topic of soil biology and, and and try and you know tease it apart a little bit. You know, I first really got excited about it. Um, my first job out of college was working at a golf course outside Washington, D.C. with a gentleman named Glenn Smickley. And, and Glenn was known for uh, being one of those people within reason to try anything uh, on his golf course. And, you know, we were on a unique piece of property because we were very close to about an 800-acre reservoir for uh, a suburban D.C. area. And so they were very, very conscious of the types of products that we used on the property and, you know, pesticides and fertilizers and everything else were not supposed to go uh, into that lake because it was drinking water. And so he opened up the idea of, you know, really looking at some of these organics that were in the um, marketplace. And, you know, in the early 90s, there weren't a whole lot of things beyond malorganite and some other things that were emerging into use. And so, you know, learning from him, uh, applying some of the products that, you know, were available at the time, some of the chicken poos that were coming into the marketplace, uh, you know, talking about feeding the soils and feeding the bugs, you know, that got me excited about my project. Uh, at NC State. And while I was there 
my first semester, I took a soil microbiology class from a gentleman named Dr. Art Wallum, who was there, and he was a soil microbiologist, but he he wasn't really a turf person at all, but um, he was kind enough, opened up his lab to me and Dan, and, you know, I, I got my elbows, got my, my uh, sleeves rolled up to my elbows and got into Petri plates and all sorts of other stuff, because, like you said, we didn't know a whole lot about sand root zones and microbiology. I mean, we, we, we had a lot of suspicions and could draw on some things from other aspects of the literature that was out there, but nobody had really done a whole lot of work uh, or was crazy enough to do enough, uh, you know, Petri plate kind of stuff like a, like a graduate student would. And uh, I think we got some, we validated some things that we knew, you know, that, that root zones initially were not sterile right. and that, uh, you know, as, as folks move into the neighborhood, if you will, as the grass starts to grow, as we start to apply products, uh, that population uh, stabilizes pretty quick. So, uh, so that was exciting times. Well, and, you know, it's interesting to hear you uh, talk about sort of how little we knew. I mean, just, you know, when I was reviewing the paper, I remember, geez, you know, he's citing things from the 70s. There, you know, this paper was published in the 2000s, and, you know, yep. there were virtually nothing done for two decades uh, around this kind of work, and yet claims were being made widely about this. And I guess, you know, uh, so let's take it up from where you left off. You left this after your graduate work, and now with the sort of uh, conversation that the industry is having, and of course it becomes product-related as well. Even Dan will tell you there's a lot of inoculants. Everybody is still trying to figure out how to manipulate the system with some sort of inoculation. Um, I do you really feel like we know that much more now? Uh, I had a little conversation with Joe Roberts about this, and I know you guys are getting going. How much more do we know now, Kale? How much more do we honestly know now? Honestly, um, no. This is frankly speaking, buddy. In in your terms, a little, little bit, a little bit. We know a little bit. <laughs> All right, we know a little bit more. Okay. Um, I, I think what's exciting, though, is you know the tools that we have as far as the molecular tools to try and uh, drill down and pull things apart and, and and try and isolate in on one or two different organisms are much much better than what we had. And you know I've got a student right now. His name is Kevin Jackson, and Kevin's been playing around with this idea of organic fairway programs. And uh, you know some of this has been inspiration from Dan Danelli and, and his and I's conversations about you know maybe this product could do something. Let's try and let's try and test it out. And you know as I was talking to Kevin and like you know the kinds of things that you can measure is you can measure populations. And you know uh, one of the things that I did at the University of Maryland with Dr. Denoden and, and Kaminsky was. We measured microbial activity because, you know, Pete was really interested in some of these organics and, and how those uh, might have some impacts on dollar spot suppression. So, you know, measuring activity is, a, is an important aspect of that. And then there's other things that you can measure like biomass, you know, how, how big that entire group is there. Uh, but we have lots of tools and we have lots of molecular things and we can develop lots and lots of data and it seems like at the end of the day, uh, you know, moving the needle dramatically is really, really hard, especially in established turf grass systems. That's exactly right, because it's stabilized in there. And what, what I think I see my colleague here, Jenny Gowniffin and Kyle Wickings, our soil micro, uh, so, uh, well, she, Jenny Gowniffin is our weed scientist, but is a, 
soil microbial ecologist from my perspective, at least what I watch, mm-hmm. Kyle Wicking's the same way. What I hear them talking about is the function of these populations. What are, you know, are they exactly. uh, mineral, are they nutrient cyclers? Are they, are they involved in phosphorus uptake? Are they involved in antagonism to pathogens? These are, these are the kinds of things that get me excited that we can study, you know, the functional level of these things. And I think some of those techniques are, are still emerging. But, it, you know, I still go back to what I hear guys talking about, Kale, about trying to manipulate these things. And maybe the approach you're taking with organic is the way to go that just by feeding the microbes, maybe something good will come of it. But I have to think, you know, I do a lot of work with products and sometimes I feel like when it's mature and stabilized, unless there's something catastrophic that occurs, it resists a lot of manipulation. And that's why maybe Dan's work over time on his fairways is the best story of the long-term look. Is is that what's interested you too, the sort of long-term look at this thing? It, it, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've got a, a few more decades uh, to work, and you know, so you know, grabbing a project like this is uh, is, is worth my time. Uh, you know, as I talk to some of my other faculty colleagues here at Purdue that are working in organic systems, you know, the first couple years are are really strange. If you suddenly take something off of a traditional synthetic program and expect to see results in year one, two, or even three, uh, it's really, really hard. You don't see a whole lot. And, and sometimes you see situations that are really quite ugly in terms of plant production that make you not want to stay the course. Uh, so it, it takes some time for uh, quite a bit of time for these things to shift. Uh, and then going back to what you said about, you know, what's the function of some of those, uh, some of those, some of those groups of organisms is, is you've got this way that we can measure activity and then you can try and tease that out and say, okay, who's doing what and how do I try and identify, you know, what is, what is the organism that I'm interested in and what do I actually want it to do? And that's the hard question. I don't think a lot of golf course managers or sports turf managers or, or people that are managing, you know, organic lawns or things like that. I don't think that they can truly answer that I want it to do X. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, some of these products are fairly broad spectrum that might not do X. And I think it makes it difficult uh, for the average uh, turf manager, sometimes inundated with the variety of products that are claiming these things, to understand that, that, you know, especially in a time like we're facing now, our soils are completely saturated throughout much, much, much of the eastern United States. I would say we're, we're under anaerobic conditions. And, you know, you have to have a population of microbes that can tolerate uh, that with... 100 degree temperatures that I'm sure you're getting down there in in central Indiana. I'm sure it gets pretty dang warm down there, Kale. Sometimes. And that's got to have its own effect on the microbial population. You know, we watched the PGA Championship uh, with Bencrass in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. These are places now that feel a lot more like warm season climates than cool season climates anymore. Uh, And the microbes, of course, have to be resilient enough to withstand those extremes and and to think that you could manipulate them to me seems really really tricky it is it is really tricky but i feel like you know there there's probably a few manufacturers out there that are that are focused on on certain things and you know there's this conversation about induced systemic resistance that we sometimes hear in the scientific community and if i apply you know bug A to, you know, a leaf surface that, you know, we might or might not get this kind of response. 
But I think what, what really gets it complicated, Frank, is, you know, our system, as opposed to some of these agricultural systems, is that regular mowing and the things that we do in terms of wetting and drying cycles for conditioning purposes, I think that plays a pretty important role uh, in this whole thing, too. Yeah, I, I think this is exactly uh, the, the exact way I probably talked about it in 2003 when we started doing many of these product trials uh, ultimately, everybody concluded that none of these sort of manipulative things you might do are going to be as important to the sort of daily, day-to-day, even long-term sustainability of your system if you didn't have a good, solid uh, cultural management program, which included you know, good growing conditions, halfway decent drainage, the ability to apply water in a halfway decent way, and supplement nutrition when the plants couldn't do it. Now, fans and everything else came after the fact. So I'm really pleased to sort of wrap up where we take a break here, Kale, and, and hear you talk about the system this way, because again, you know, I'm pleased that you're back in the conversation about soil uh, biology, and, and it's also interesting to see how slow Uh, Some of these things that require long-term study evolve. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. This is Frank Rossi. I'm with Professor Cal Bigelow at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. This is the TurfNet Radio Network. We'll be right back. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Professor Cal Bigelow, Purdue University, has published a wide range of scientific material. If you have access to the Turfgrass information file, he's one of those guys you can look at in the last 20 years that has this wide breadth of information that he's published in. And I think uh, the more recent stuff, Kale, that really got me interested in wanting to chat with you was your work with trying to connect the turfgrass education system that we have in the United States to the workforce needs that our industry has. You certainly have a long history and a wide birth of students that have graduated from Purdue University under your tutelage, you know, people who care about it from the Daniels and Throssell days after that. So you have a lot of eyes focused on you and probably like many of the turfgrass programs following the crash of 09, a significant drop, uh, in the number of students coming into the industry. Now, before that, what I noticed is you were developing ways to increase access to the information. And so you were developing an online class of turfgrass science, and you did a nice little study that you published in, in the NACTA journal, the North American Colleges and Teachers of Agriculture, probably something that most people don't know about except you and me and three other people listening to this podcast. You published this great paper on this case study you did looking at comparing sitting in a classroom to learning online. Summarize that study for us and sort of the general findings that you had. 
So, and back to kind of, you know, where you started is, you know, when I was hired into Purdue, that was shortly after, uh, you know, Dr. Throssell had left. And, you know, I feel very, very fortunate to sort of be in this chair, if you will, if you, if you sort of look, if you trace it back, because, you know, it was Bill Daniel, who was an educator, Clark Throssell, who was an educator, and then they hired me uh, to also, you know, sort of continue that legacy of, you know, turf science education. And, and so, as you well know, we work at land-grant institutions, and we get paid out of different buckets. And, you know, your primary bucket is an extension bucket, and, you know, my primary bucket is education. So, you know, out of the dean's office, they're like, Kale, you need to, you know, let's, let's focus in on education. What can you do? And, uh, you know, we have lots of, lots of capabilities and possibilities here on campus. And it was that time, sort of in the 2000s, where some interesting things were happening. And, you know, it, we were growing beyond sort of the University of Phoenix's and, you know, places like the Penn State World Campus were really kind of coming into their own. And uh, so the idea was that, you know, hey, what what's an opportunity for, you know, us to offer something? And so I was asked to consider developing an online turf science class. And so I went through that whole process. And, you know, it, it's work developing a class. It's even more work sometimes to develop a class that goes online. And so, you know, as, as part of the promotion process. They're like, you know, can you document anything? Can you show impact to the promotion committee? And and so I was like, okay, well, let's take a look at this and, you know, uh, let's see how these learners are as far as, you know, completion of the course and, and uh, performance in the course, uh, you know, in the classroom, resident education versus online. And, you know, what we found is, you know, no big surprise, nothing earth shattering. You know, if someone's motivated to learn, they're going to learn. Right. Okay. And, you know, particularly we're, we're not doing things like biochemistry for what we teach. We're not doing, you know, some things like quantum physics. And, you know, these are things that in a lot of ways are fairly practical and, you know, people can sort of wrap their arms around the, the concepts. And if they want to learn them really well, they're going to learn them really well. I mean, that's the crux of where we were right then. That's correct. And I think uh, our job is to make the information accessible. I think it's easily accessible information. I mean, it's soil, it's plants, it's weather, Especially most, if most everyone's got a lawn, you know, I mean, <laughs> most everyone's got a lawn. That's so. exactly right. So, so educating them, obviously in two different environments, the thing that was interesting to me is when you looked at the amount of time they spent based on the grade they got, and there was almost a linear correlation, the yep. more time they spent online working on the class, the better their grade reflected it. And again, wow. Yeah. Earth shattering. I know. <laughs> but here's the Students thing. Students that come to class usually do better too. Well, that's right, and and there is that was one of the pieces of data that you got a higher rating in the classroom than you got online, and I think therein lies the rub, right? I think yep. we can do as much online education as we want, but the, to me, the argument for young people to continue to come to universities and become immersed in an academic uh, endeavor for four more years after secondary school is the interaction with the faculty that are there. I, I think the level that we get to operate, especially guys like you and me, that we're very connected to the industry so we can be very relevant to the students that we interact with. And I think the success of your program uh, is dependent on that. So to me, in one way, it's good that you can make information accessible online, and if the student is motivated, they're going to do well. And we see this happening with the Great Lakes uh, School of Turf, right? Uh, that that, that mm-hmm. program has really taken off nicely, and I think for the working person, it's, it's not a bad way to access the information. And one more right turn, Cal. 
before sure. we wrap it up, and that is this work you did with Kaminsky on using social media right. and electronic. You right. know, more about accessibility. This is more about accessibility in the classroom, which you and I know as modern professors now. You know, and I don't know if you have rules about this, but some of my colleagues try to institute the can't open the laptop, uh, put your phone in a bucket. Some of them use jamming signals so that they're so that the phones don't work. I'm like, listen, I need you to come in here. I'm going to do the best I can to engage you in the learning. But I will say, Cal. It, it, the, I've used Poll Everywhere. I've you. I've let them Google. I, I have Apple TV where they can all throw things on the screen in the classroom. I really felt like it looked like your paper said there are ways to do this. But talk a little bit about your work, uh, mostly when it was done and how much things have changed. Sure, and you know that was that time with our with our dear friend Dr. John Kaminsky, aka the Social Networker. Um, you know, he and I were having conversations, and uh, you know these these online, um, you know, Web two whatever you want to call it, were really starting to become you know things that people were embracing. And you know what what got me excited is you know we teach in a typical classroom, or we could potentially teach something online, and and those are two kind of silos in the sense that. You know, we're stuck here in this little classroom or we're stuck in this online portal. But the nice thing about things like Twitter, you know, pick your social media platform, is suddenly we've just potentially opened the conversation to whoever wants to tune in. You know, people follow your Twitter feed or they might follow our turf program Twitter feeds or they might, you know, follow, you know, what some of the other folks are doing. For example, I just learned this morning that our, our friend Dr. DaCosta had, uh, had issues with their rainout structure uh, there at, at, at UMass, and so that's going to affect some research data for them. But, you know, we, we can connect and, and we can start to learn a little bit not only about what they're doing, but, you know, even sometimes who they are as people and, uh, you know, sort of support each other or encourage each other. Or, you know, it amazes me some of the things that our golf course managers put out there, and sometimes they'll highlight maybe something that one of their equipment technicians did that, that's making a job easier. And you can bring those sort of ideas into, uh, into the classroom, or maybe somebody posts something out there that's, that's a little bit, you know, maybe on the edge, and you can bring that idea to the classroom, to the students, and say, hey, you know, such and such person posted this over in might even be a different continent, and they're using this tool this way. What do you think? We talked about it last week go. And, uh, you know, that, that, that helps to you know, bring some more relevance in the classroom and also engage the students. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's interesting because that's what I think we sort of know and see and are doing today. But back when you did this work, it looked like the early phases of it where they were mostly using it for personal things. They, sure. Whenever we would say social media, I remember when I first started having it this conversation. Facebook. Yeah, or, or, or even Twitter. Many of them reserve those sorts of things for their personal lives, not their professional lives. And I think uh, from our perspective, the sort of progressive people have found a way to utilize this particular avenue of communication to enrich their work rather than distract them from their work. Do you find that this is what's happening with the students? Is it now something that is enriching their experience or is it still, you think, uh, distracting? Both. Hmm. And, uh, you know, you look at 
some of the types of classes that are offered to some of our entry point students uh, here on campus and, you know, some of the classes like uh, study skills type of class. I didn't realize, you know, that 18 to 22-year-old student, you know, how much they're actually touching that mobile device on a daily basis and constantly checking things and their ability to multitask in their brains and focus in on, you know, the work that's right in front of them without having to check Snapchat or Instagram or all those other kinds of things. There are some students and some people that can do that quite regularly, you know, on and off, on and off. And, you know, you might be one of those people, Frank, because you're a pretty energetic guy. But for those students that are maybe more academically at risk, having some way for them to maybe push that device aside and focus in on the things that they need to do for classes in front of them, I think is an important thing. And there's apps that can tell you how much time you spent doing different things on your phone. And uh, it's quite telling because it's sometimes a huge time suck. And since we're talking about sort of the next generation and how it's going to be impacted by technology, as we wrap up, Cal, our conversation, I can't let you go without talking about the issues that we're having with student numbers, the backlog of assistance jobs that are out there, the lack of what looks like upward mobility. Superintendents are getting better at keeping these jobs for longer periods of time. It it doesn't look like the career assistant position is really embraced yet because it costs a lot. I mean, I go to places, Cal, I'm sure you do too. There's, you know, a first assistant, a second assistant, a lead assistant, an assistant in training, a spray tech, an irrigation tech. You know, they're creating these jobs because they're very much needed for the detail that's required. Are we going to be able to supply our industry with educated young people or educated any people to fill these jobs? I think we will. You know, I'm, I'm actually fairly optimistic. And, you know, we, we look at the different statistics here for the College of Agriculture and, you know, our, our Office of Academic Programs talks to students. And, you know, part of my job is talking to prospective students and parents about opportunities in agriculture broadly defined. And I think that last year, if, if my number is correct, there were over 20,000 bachelor's level jobs in agriculture that went unfilled. Okay. So as I talk to that 18 year old student that's potentially thinking of coming to Purdue University and majoring in one of our ag majors, you know, their future is really bright. Now, the other part of that, you know, if you look at golf and sports turf, and if we focus in on golf, I think that uh, it, it was Pat Jones gave a talk at one of our conferences locally this past year, and, and he used or coined the term boomer palooza in the sense that, you know, there are going to be a whole bunch of our baby boomer golf course managers that are about to pulse out over the next four or five years. They've just reached that age that they're going to move on. They've been excellent at holding on to their positions, but then suddenly there's one of those first assistants that moves up. Where my big concern has been for the last three, four years, and I'm not alone with this, is who are those first assistants as they move up? Who are they going to hire into that next role? You know, who's going to be that, you know, management type assistant that they can find. And the four-year student is still going to come through institutions like ours and still move into the workforce and be prepared in an excellent way. But is, is there some way that we can try and accelerate the process for bringing other skilled people with good technical knowledge and good work experiences into those entry-level management positions? We're actually in a unique situation here at Purdue. I don't know if you knew uh, last year Purdue University purchased an online institution, and now we have something called Purdue Global, which is in place. And the idea there is, you know, a Purdue education for working, uh, for working adults. And so we're looking at ways that maybe we can leverage that uh, to provide some, you know, education, perhaps turf, 
for places like the Midwest that are, you know, looking for these entry-level management positions in the golf industry. Boy, we could chat for another... But I'm optimistic. Well, and I think you have every right to be. I would agree that generationally we're going to see a bit of a shift. Uh, it, I, I didn't think about that, but it's sort of like a plug in the drain that once it gets released is going to yep. create a demand. And of course, you and I know we're seeing it at, at land-grant institutions with our sure. colleagues that have retired and their positions not getting filled. There has been this change over the years. In our case, we're not getting jobs filled, but people still have to run golf courses and they're yep. not all going to close uh, where they're not going to no. need these people. So I'm with you on the level of optimism. And Cal, I can't thank you enough for taking but, the but time. But I still, I, I'm going to, I'm going to say one, one thing. I still am of the opinion that a hundred percent online type of program for the reasons that we stated a few minutes ago, this connection with some of the faculty and some of the experts, I think is the better way to go. Maybe if there's an online component with some short sections where they come to, you know, a campus or some sort of learning center that they bring, you know, people like you or me or Kaminsky or Fidanza or pick some of our great faculty colleagues and, and, and they focus in on the content that they need and they build that community you know, that personal community is a big part of the success in our industry. Yeah. And I would say further that that could be an emerging role for extension. I mean, we, we yeah. are educating people uh, in the field on the latest things. And I know, you know, Aaron Patton uh, and his weed work with you guys and the gosh, the work you guys have been doing over the years, there's a uh, good extension programs that can help with that. This is, I, I couldn't second that more that having that personal interaction is critical. And there certainly is a lot of need for that technical information. But I, I would hope that those connections that they make with experts uh, and people who are not trying to sell them something uh, at the end of the day uh, remains intact. And helping them to become educated consumers. Because ultimately, in my opinion, you know, the golf course manager is the most important person on that property. And if you serve up a poor golf course, people aren't going to come back. And if they don't know what they're doing, it's bad. That's right. Cal, Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me and, and join us on Frankly Speaking and get back to your colleagues at uh, Purdue University. And I'll look forward to chatting with you in the future. We'll chat and hopefully see you on the road soon. That's right. Thanks, Thanks Frank. Cal. Cal Bigelow, Purdue University professor of turfgrass science. This is Frankly Speaking. I'll be right back with some final thoughts. Cal Bigelow epitomizes the modern land-grant scientist. He's a leader of our National Research Division and also been a leading voice for education in turf. He's had a wide range of interests in studying turf grasses and more recently his re-emerging interest in soil biology with our work with our pal out in Chicago, Dan Dinelli, the golf course superintendent at North Shore Golf Club. The land-grant institutions continue to adapt to societal changes and we're lucky to have professionals like Cal leading one of our great institutions in Indiana and educating the next generation of turf grass professionals. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. 
Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.